Do you love live events? Have you ever wondered how to successfully equity crowdfund? Or interested in building a marketplace business and how that works? Well, if so, then this episode of the Silicon Alley podcast is for you. I sit down with Ed Vincent. He's the founder of Festival Pass and talk about all three things. This is one of those episodes where you just come away learning so much and we dive deep into the nuances of equity crowdfunding as well as how to build a marketplace for live events and creating community while you build a marketplace. It's really, really interesting and you're gonna take a lot away that you can apply in your own business and life. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's all about talking to VCs, entrepreneurs, and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. And this episode will not disappoint. If you haven't already, please go ahead and pound that subscribe button or click follow on whatever app you are listening or watching this episode. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Ed Vincent. Are you interested in growing and scaling your business? Welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast, where you'll hear from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and top performers on what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll walk away with actionable insights you can apply in your own business and life. Now to William Glass, the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. Ed, welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Thanks, Will. Uh, glad, glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to start off, you've done a lot over your 20 plus years as an entrepreneur, also on the investor side, advising side. But I'm really curious because the venture that you've started right now is called Festival Pass and it's in the entertainment industry. But if I look back at your background, you actually have a finance background. Can you talk to me about the (laughs) how you went from finance to entrepreneur and entertainment and media and creativity? Sure. I mean, there, there's context to every story, of course. I came from the finance world as a finance major in college, I even sat for the uh, CFA, if anybody knows what that is, and then went on to be an investment banker, first at KPMG, then at Toronto Dominion Bank. And, you know, that was the full aspiration sitting in college in uh, state school in New Jersey, you know, to be an invest- investment banker in New York City it was like the, the, the dream. Until I got there and realized that while, yeah, it's cool, and I'm sure if I stayed in it, I could have made a ton of money, but the reality is is I had the entrepreneur bug since I was 10. Yeah, and it, 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 there's, there's context to it. I started by uh, throwing big New Year's parties in New York City with a buddy of mine. And one year, probably, I guess it was 1999, we threw the party and realized that, hey, there's this thing called the internet where we could accept credit cards and actually pay for the tickets rather than running all over the five boroughs of uh, New York and collecting cash on the street corner for New Year's Eve tickets. And that was kind of the introduction to the internet. And, and from there, things got built. Nice. So I'm assuming that wasn't what the, where the bug started at 10 years old, but is how it developed uh, later. Otherwise, you were a very adventurous 10-year-old throwing parties in New York City. But talk to me about that initial interest that led to that decision and building the, the business around accepting payments online. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about like uh, the 10-year-old dad or, or the uh, yeah, 10-year-old dad, 10-year-old yeah, dad. I was just, I was like, I always say that I was a, a, a poor kid in a, in a rich town, meaning that I grew up in, in on the Jersey shore in a really nice uh, town and area, but, but I, we were the poorest family in the town for various reasons along the way. So even at 10 years old, I was putting newspapers together at the local luncheonette at Secret Luncheonette to get my $5 and a free breakfast. And that was always kind of the, the concept of being self-sufficient and, you know, that rolling into 
you know, working through most of my life. And then in college, I ran a real estate appraisal business out of my dorm room. And I was one of the few kids that actually had a fax machine, if anybody even knows what that is, a fax machine and a laptop in my dorm room, you know, working in between classes. That's awesome. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like you've, you have that drive wanting to um, be self-sufficient, as you said. So talk to me about how that developed the 20 year old you and then wanting to go into investment banking, thinking that was, you know, the epitome of success as being a big wall street guy. And then that translated into, you know, accepting some of these entrepreneurial behaviors that you clearly, you clearly have. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I, when I had the real estate appraisal business and this being a finance type show, you, you, they're in the concept of valuation. You know, I say this then, and I'll still say it today. There's only three ways to value anything in life financially. I mean, I'm not talking about uh, love and all the uh, nice things that are valuable that aren't finance related, but in the world of real estate, there was three ways to value a piece of property. It was, you know, what is the discounted cash flow? What would it cost to build it from scratch? And what are other things like it selling for? Same goes to stocks, same goes to companies, same goes to anything in life. And I'd be hard pressed to uh, have anybody prove to me differently that those aren't the three valuation metrics to create anything. That all being said, fast forward to going into to banking and realizing how fun it was. But I realized that even in banking, you're always a service provider to the to the leader of a business. And I, I loved being part of the transaction and helping people raise capital. And, and But then I'm like, well, I kind of want to be that guy that I'm helping raise capital for. And then that kind of was that inspiration and launch. And back in 1999, uh, when I was mentioning, we we're throwing these big New Year's parties. After realizing that, there just seemed to be so much fun opportunities to take a business online and build it. And, and the first company was citystuff.com where we sold things that made cities famous. And that was an offshoot of our New Year's parties. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that kind of transition. And I guess, talk to me about the creativity side specifically, right? So you've got Festival Pass, you've decided, hey, I don't want to be in this stuffy investment banking kind of a world anymore. I want to be the guy that's getting the checks written or the entrepreneur that's kind of taking all the risks. So can you talk to me about that? And then the first ventures as you, as you took the business online and start thinking about Festival Pass. Yeah. So if I, if I can start with Festival Pass and go backwards, one of the things, and we can get into what Festival Pass is, but I, I like to, to think that every entrepreneurial company that I built in the past all led up to what Festival Pass is today. And, you know, on the, the, on the outside, people are like, oh, you know, it's in live events. I get that. But it's much more than that. It's, it's very much a financially driven credit-based currency model that all of my finance background really helped drive. It has a lot to do with my agency I had throughout the 2000s. I had a, uh, about a 70-person experiential agency called Vincent Partners, and we uh, bring big brands to big events and helped launch and build a few film festivals. We owned a film festival down in the Dominican Republic, and all of that kind of love of live events is what kind of drove me to that path. Subsequently, after that agency, I had a SaaS business, which got me understanding the concept of monthly subscription. I was like, okay, I get this recurring revenue is actually a good business model. And then leading up to the next business I had, which was a data-driven business called Predict Analytics, where we helped a lot of big entertainment companies understand their consumer data. So if I look at what Festival Pass is today, it's a very data-driven, dynamic pricing, subscription-based model, 
that Ioni would know about had I been in the data business for five years. I'd only think about subscription had I been, not been in the SaaS business and then leading back into the product, which is live events themselves. Gotcha. That's really interesting. So all of your experiences leading up to Festival Pass is really what's enabled you to get to the point to build the company today. And I think one of the companies, right, that you consulted for in the data side was MoviePass. Can you yes. talk to me a little bit about, obviously very similar in terms of MoviePass, Festival Pass, there's a naming there, but can you talk about how the business model is different? Because for those that are familiar, you know that the business wasn't successful because of their business model, had a ton of success in terms of consumers loving the product, but they didn't have the economics right. So can you talk a little bit about the distinction between Festival Pass and MoviePass and what you learned from that experience? Yeah, so it's a very different business model. You're right, the name is very similar. And I, I did enjoy the experience there. Um, I was the interim chief data officer, so I was able to kind of get under the covers and had the opportunity to see what three and a half million subscribers look like in terms of the data. But um, the, it is a very different business model. And you know, I like to, to use the, the John Bolton or Hamilton theory, whichever one analogy you want to use, but it was the room where, where it happened. I was sitting in the room watching a really great product market fit, but a very bad execution of a business model. So it was a, it was a great learning experience. So the core of the differences is Festival Pass is a credit-based currency model. I have no problem sharing that we learned a lot about it from some other successes like ClassPass, if you're familiar with ClassPass. Absolutely, I like to yeah. I like to tell people that it's a Airbnb meets ClassPass for live events if 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 they can put their head around what that means. So it's a marketplace utilizing a credit-based currency for a subscription product that just happens to be live events. So the difference between MoviePass is MoviePass was an unlimited product based upon a industry where the the actual person supplying the supply, the inventory, had no control over the pricing. So think of a studio. Studios control the pricing of the ticket. The exhibitor, which is the movie theater, has no control over the fact that it's $15 in New York to see a movie at noon on Wednesday, and it's still $15 on Friday night at 8 to see a blockbuster film. So there was no pricing disparity. The independent film is the same price as the big $200 million blockbuster. So that causes a lot of problems being able to play with or even understand dynamic pricing for supply and demand. So on top of that, the, the core issue is that when you're promising people an unlimited use of something that you don't own, meaning you don't own the inventory, you have a, you have a difficult model that you're trying to accomplish. And you know everybody tries to say, well, okay, it's just like a gym, it's breakage. The truth is, is that it's not breakage because in a gym, it's, it's uh, self-regulating. So you go to a gym, you pay 30 bucks a month, and all of a sudden at five o'clock, it's busy. What do you do? You stop going at five and you go earlier or you go later. Uh, so you, it eventually self-regulates itself where supply and demand comes together. Problem is in, in MoviePass business that didn't exist. So they were subsidizing the customer for far too long and that really hurt the growth business model. That's a really interesting distinction. The two pieces around not being able to control your, your pricing, right? And having control over, over that aspect of it movie theaters didn't, didn't have that capability. And then the self-regulation, which is something that I hadn't thought about. Can you talk a little bit about how that's different for Festival Pass and how yep. you are able to work with venues and kind of talk through the model that you've developed in a little bit more detail? 
Sure. So first of all, a lot of people don't realize how big of a business the um, uh, live events business is. So it's a $200 billion global business. And also, sometimes we, uh, people confuse the fact that we call ourselves Festival Pass with the assumption it's only for festivals. That is not the case. I mean, we chose that brand name just because it evokes some kind of emotion, especially for kind of the millennial and uh, Gen Z set. It's that experiential thing that you feel when you're at a festival. But we're all live events. And when you look at the live event spectrum, it's it's movies, it's concerts, it's festivals, it's food and wine events, it's theater, it's sporting events. It's, it's pretty much everything that is a live event. So globally, it's a huge business. The other mm-hmm. misnomer that a lot of people um, forget is that everybody thinks of the large companies that control a certain portion of the industry. So I'm sure you, you know some of the names, Live Nation, a few others. Yeah. But the truth is, is they don't, control as much as everybody thinks. Globally, you know, they're they're a small percentage of the overall live events market, meaning that there's tens of thousands of producers, venues, event owners, rights holders, all the above. So when you take a market where you have tens of thousands of people contributing the inventory to that market, it's a ripe for a marketplace business model. So that's one of the key things. And then the second key thing was the credit-based currency model. So the way Festival Pass works, which is not the way Movie Pass worked, is that people sign up and pay a subscription fee, whether it's nine or $99 a month, and they get a certain amount of credits for that. So if they're willing to commit to $99 a month, they pay less per credit for the credits they're buying. And then once they have those credits, they can choose to use those credits to go to as many live events as they can can for that amount of credits. So I liken it to the, you're probably too young to remember this, but the old world of the arcades, some people might remember Dave and Buster's these days, but the old world of the arcades is you go in and you put $20 in the token machine, you get some tokens and the cool shoot them up game is four tokens and the pinball is one token. So you can choose how you spend that money. So for us, there's a couple of things we're solving is one, we allow people that commit to a higher monthly ongoing subscription to effectively attend events cheaper because they're paying less per credit. And then we're also solving for a lot of the friction that has existed in the business for a long time. Nobody likes paying ticketing fees. They don't like, you know, a hundred dollar fee. And then on the way out, it's an extra 20 bucks. It's just a lack of transparency the market has been dealing with for decades. And it almost doesn't matter to the consumer, the price they're actually paying. It's just, it's just, they don't like that extra surprise at the end. But not only are we moving to a model where there are no ticketing fees, we're also uh, making sure when people are getting events, they're going to be cost less than they will elsewhere because of the fact that we can have predictable revenue with the ongoing recurring revenue streams. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and thanks for diving deep there, Ed. So you've got to really get the venues as well, because you, as you said, this is a marketplace, right? So the reason that you're able to, the credit based business model works is because you have both sides of the marketplace. Is that correct? Because you're being, you're yep. able to s- provide some sort of service or benefits to the venues, the producers, the people that are putting on the events, as well as the consumers that want to go to live events. And as you said, not have to pay fees, which I hate fees, bank fees, any kind of fee. I had to yep. pay a fee to earlier today and I was really upset. It was only like $1.50, but I was still upset. So I, I completely get that. So that's why this works though, right? It's because you've got the both sides of the marketplace. That's correct. Yeah. So th- there's a there's a lot of ways to the consumer side is uh, easy is the wrong word, 
but in, in the, the world of today in digital marketing, it's easy to reach a lot of people to let them know about your offering and to have a little um, discipline over the price you'll pay to reach them. So we, we, I wouldn't say we have that down at scale yet, but we have pretty consistently know how to fill the funnel where as long as we tell people what we're doing, we're getting a, a big, huge response uh, of people wanting to come and join Festival Pass initially as a free member. And then uh, when they see an event they like moving into a paid membership. So the consumer side, I think we have solved in terms of the brand, the promise, the value prop. On the flip side, we need the inventory, right, to, to make people be able to use those credits and still be excited to continue to stay on month to month. So there are, there is an interesting way to gather a lot of this inventory. So we have partnerships across the board. So we have partnerships with some event producers. We have partnerships with some venue owners. We have partnerships with some ticket aggregators. We have partnerships with some primary ticketing companies. We have partnerships with overall, how do I call it, a, a data feed supplier of event listings. So what we do is pull all of these mechanisms together and then bring it into our database so we can actually showcase these thousands of events for our for our users. Gotcha. So that makes a lot of sense. So the value prop for venues is being able to sell out essentially, right? Being able to sell all their inventory, make sure that they put on really great events. And I'm assuming essentially partly marketing, right? If you've got this huge yep. consumer base, the benefit is I don't have to go list it on you know, Live Nation and Meetup and all these other different websites where you can Facebook events or all the all the different places now where you can put an event. It's you just go to Festival Pass and it's it's done. You sell your event out. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Is one, yes, we our members tend to be high frequency event goers. It becomes a, okay. a popular group to present information to. It also is very helpful that we're building this recommendation engine that really doesn't exist anywhere else. So kind of like a Netflix-like re recommendation engine. So as our members join, we know a little bit about our members. You know, I come from a data background, so I know how to how do, how do I say, provide more insight into who our members are. And then as they create behavioral aspects within our environment, we start to learn a little more about, do they like rock and roll? Do they like country music? Do they like soccer? Do they like football? And what that allows, just like Netflix, is when you have thousands of opportunities to choose from, how do you show Will the right 20 events on the right day at the right time. And, and how, do Ed, how does Ed get different events than Will gets based upon the location, based upon the interest. And what that does is it really puts the, the right opportunity in front of the right person. So when you talk about the marketing aspect, that is absolutely part of the case, right? So we already know our members are high frequency live event goers. We already know that if I list or have a partnership with Festival Pass, my event's gonna be shown to the right people at the right time. So yes, the, the idea is over time, we'll be able to drive you know, as many people to that event as desired based upon the you know, capacity for an event to either sell out or not sell out. The one thing I'll add to that, which is interesting and why a lot of event producers and venue owners kind of like what we're doing is because we're a membership-based community and because we are a credit-based currency, um, it doesn't cannibalize their full price ticket sales. So a lot of times in the past, somebody has a, an event and they're like, okay, well, we can fit 5,000 people at our event. And I know typically I'm going to sell 4,000 tickets or 3,000 tickets. And I'd love to get an, an additional 500 people there, another 100 people, whatever the number is. 
in the past, the way they would do that is they go to Groupon or a couple other different venues and they'd list it for 30% off and people come in and get a ticket for a discount, which is great. They fill, fill the seats. But what that does is it creates a problem for anybody coming and buying that full price ticket because it's public, because now people see it's discounted on Groupon. Why would I ever go buy it for full price if it's discounted on Groupon? And because of the way search engines work, Groupon will come up just as quickly as the 100% ticket. So in our world, it's a membership. People are pre-committing their dollars. They're pre-committing to be a live event goer. And it's not available for a discount to just the general public. Yeah, no, thanks for pointing that out, Ed, because that's a really interesting point that you made. Because I think about like the the subscription food delivery services. I don't know, like HelloFresh and Blue Apron. Like, I think I will never ever pay full price because I get so many coupons and discount codes. And part of that is a little different, right? Where everyone's you know fighting to get market share and they've got billions in their coffers from VCs. So that's part of it. But as a consumer, once I know that I can get you know the meals for half off, why would I ever pay full price? And I think that's a really a really important point from both the consumer perspective and the model that you've got set up where it's credit-based. So I, I'm getting a discount, but the public doesn't necessarily know that. And then also protecting the venue and the integrity of the venue to still be able to incentivize people to, to go to the event that wouldn't necessarily, and they're getting a discount, but it's a way to kind of mask that discount. Yep. So really, really, really interesting perspective there. So I'm going to assume this answer, the biggest challenge so far it's probably a pandemic and no live events going on for you know a better part of a year, longer than a year. So I definitely want to touch on that. But I also am curious to think about moving forward, building a marketplace, building this credit, as you keep saying, credit-based, this currency, as well as you know the overall the overall business. What are the kind of the biggest challenges that you're tackling today? Yeah, so I, I do think. Um... You know, full transparency on it is is when you have a marketplace, you do have to fill both sides. So it's about filling them in the right time in the right place. So in in the concept of a marketplace, you either have a root density or a global density marketplace. The analogy would be like Uber or Lyft. As long as there's enough drivers and passengers in one market, you can have a root density marketplace only in New York, only even Queens, and still have a successful marketplace as long as the buyers and sellers are meeting there. So in that capacity, as we go fill more and more live events that are in our network, we're doing so in geographical areas. So, you know, right now, Central Texas is important to us. New York's important to us. South Florida is important to us. LA is important to us. Phoenix and Nashville. But eventually, we want to make, we want to have events in every major city throughout the country that are enough to sustain somebody's desire to be a subscriber. But that's the challenge is, is to, to focus on meeting the needs of people where both sides of the marketplace are growing in a similar, a, a similar capacity, making sure our marketing spend is going where our events are. Perfect. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And I like that you brought that up, the root density. So you can have a successful marketplace in one lo- location, and you don't have to worry about trying to, you know, make your Toronto subscriber happy, even though you haven't, you don't have any venues in Toronto because you're ba- focused on U.S. markets and specific yeah. locales. So it's a really interesting way to think about it. It also helps us in the future for global growth. So it's easy for us, or will be easy for us to say, okay, now we have hundreds of thousands or millions of subscribers in the US, let's just do Germany. Okay, and let's spend six months building a root density marketplace just in Germany. So then let's go to the UK, then let's go to Australia. We can do that because you only need tens of thousands of users in each market in order to support a root density marketplace. 
Gotcha. And yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm assuming there's probably large companies that own venues or put on events in multiple locations. So if they've already having success in one market with Festival Pass, it's probably easier to get that that same provider to open up in, as you said, Germany and Munich or you know sure. wherever wherever that is. Agreed. So Ed, one of the things that you've chosen to do as well is use equity crowdfunding. And I'm curious if you could talk about why you um, chose to do equity crowdfunding. Pretty have a pretty good, pretty suspicion as to why, but would love to uh, you know hear your rationale of why you chose to go that route in terms of raising capital. Sure. So a lot of it is explained. If anybody wants to read an article I wrote called "Zero to 100 Million Dollars in Revenue with uh, No VC Funding," you could just type. Uh, type that in Google and it will show up with my name. But it's just really explaining the concept that today there's just so many more sources of capital. And it's not that I dislike VCs. It just comes down to there's so many sources that can allow so many other people to participate. So in my kind of 20 years of going through the process, I, I've raised capital from VCs, I've raised a bootstrap companies, I've raised capital from private equity groups. And each one comes with a different flavor of, uh, how do I say, opportunities and challenges. So part of it is really understanding what capital source is right for what stage of a company. And today, with equity crowdfunding, where you can raise up to $5 million a year with Reg CF and up to $75 million a year with uh, Reg A, it becomes this really amazing opportunity, especially with a consumer product, to allow your members to actually own part of the experience. So I just have always loved the idea that a member of Festival Pass can actually be an owner of Festival Pass and vice versa, an owner can be a member. And as, as time goes forward, those who are investors and owners are gonna be much more likely to be the biggest fans and biggest influencers telling everybody else to participate and be a part of it. So that's one big piece. And then the other really is, is the idea that I've always believed that Main Street investors should have an opportunity to be a part of something that has the capacity to grow to multiple hundreds of millions of dollars before it goes public. So not just waiting till Airbnb goes public and, and then having the Robinhood investors come in and pay five times as much as all the VCs did originally. So I just have that kind of democratized way of thinking about how investing works. And that's it's democ democratic with a small d. <laughs> <laughs> But I've always wanted that. So, and just to share with everybody is we have a multiple prong approach to uh, to our capital raising. So we do have a crowdfunding available as we speak today, probably be alive for another month or so for this first campaign. And we're planning to do an always on equity crowdfunding campaign. So we'll never not be raising money. It's just every quarter, the valuation is going to go up. So we'll go up to match the fundamentals of the business. So in the process of that, I look at capital from three sources. One is equity crowdfunding. The other is strategic equity. And I'll share in a minute. We have a lot of amazing individual investors that are part of it. And then the third is low cost debt. So up until a couple of years ago, there wasn't the ability for direct-to-consumer companies to go access low-cost debt capital, you know, in the hundreds, in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars for digital marketing spend. So when I look at all of our future growth dollars that we're going to use to acquire new customers, it's all going to come from low-cost debt. And then we're going to use our equity crowdfunding and strategic investors for operational capital. Got it. Okay. So that's 
that's very interesting. So can you talk? So a couple of things that I want I'm want to dig in on. I guess the first is this. You mentioned something that was interesting. I don't think I've heard anyone talk about it before. Is this always on funding? So can you talk about yep. what you mean by always on crowdfunding? Yes. So usually what happens in the crowdfunding space, and this is something that I haven't seen yet either, but we'll, hopefully it will work, is people have a campaign and they say, okay, we're going to go out and raise a million dollars or $5 million. We're going to do it over three to six months. And when it's over, it's over. And then maybe a year or two from then they'll come back and say, okay, maybe I'll try and raise more money. And there's been companies that have been successful in doing that. And most of the ones that have gone on to raise tens of millions of dollars do so through a reggae. But what we're doing is we have a campaign that's live now and we're raising at a certain valuation and we're building the company. But within that three months that the campaign went live to when we're going to complete it is uh, there's been a lot happening in the company in terms of growth. So after the three months, we're going to pull the campaign down and then we'll go live with another campaign immediately or within a few days. And the valuation will match the current valuation of what the fundamentals of the business say it should. So I'll give you a random example. Like right now, we're raising money at a $20 million valuation on Start Engine. Once we do the second campaign, maybe it's a $25 million or a $30 million valuation because now we have 50,000 more subscribers. Now we have 1,000 more events. Now we have you know, X amount of people that are paying $50 a month to be subscribers. So when we can match the valuation with it, what it does is it creates a mark-to-mark of value. So I know if I came in at $20 million valuation and now it's trading at a $30 million valuation, as an investor, I'm excited because I saw, okay, cool. You know, it's on paper, but I now have a 50% increase in the value of, of my investment. In the traditional private company world is very difficult to understand what something's worth. So this creates a quarter to quarter mark to mark valuation. It also helps with outside strategic investors. So we've raised a bunch of money from some really influential people. I mean, a lot of times they're excited to invest because they know within a few months, we're going to, the valuation is going to increase again. Got it. That's really interesting. And it's just something that I haven't heard anyone doing because typically it's, you know, at least in the VC world, it's every 18 months you're raising. If you're doing really well, maybe it's it's sooner. Or if you're not doing so well, you got to do a bridge round to get to the next round. So you've essentially just kind of turned on this way to allow Main Street investors, but also it's a, it's a way to kind of always have continuous funding for the business yep. as you're building. What about giving away too much equity. Is that a concern of that you're going to dilute yourself out if you're always raising? Or I guess I'm curious about how that piece works. Sure. So so it's, it's actually the exact opposite because if we had taken traditional institutional VC money early on in the seed stage or the classic kind of series A world, that comes with a lot more restrictions to say it lightly. And there's there's a lot of different ways some institutional investors require their investments to be made that protects them, I'd say, from anti-dilution, but also ends up diluting some of the initial investors. So what happens in this concept of crowdfunding is because on a quarterly basis, the valuation's increasing, that you're never really being diluted at all. So it's funny when people in, in the world of dilution, sometimes they don't understand the the concept. Sometimes they say, oh, well, I used to own 5%, now I own 3%. That doesn't matter. The concept is, is is the money that you put in at 5% now worth more 
in total than it is at 3%. So as long as the valuation is continuously increasing, you're not really being diluted. You might own less percentage of the company, but you, you're, whatever you own is, is worth much, much more money. Yeah, I appreciate you explaining that, Ed, because I think that's a common misconception is, is you typically don't want to raise at a lower valuation, then that is uh, not the case. But as long as your valuation is going up, then the fact that you yeah, now own 3% instead of 5%, you should have, it should be worth more in terms of value. Yep. So what does, I guess, success look like for Festival Pass, right? We've kind of talked a, a little bit, and I, I alluded to some of the things that you're thinking about in terms of you know, where you'd like to be globally, but, you know, talk to me a little bit about the future of Festival Pass and what success looks like. Sure. I mean, for me, it's about having this, this way for people to connect live. Like the overall mission really is about getting people to connect with humans more often and more regularly and build that community. So that, that's what always has driven me. That's what I've always loved about live events. It's a once in a lifetime experience, no matter what event you're at, it will never happen again. So the, the people that are at a specific event at that specific time is a magical experience, whether it's a, you know, a football game or, or a, a cool little concert in a dive bar, they're all really cool experiences. So I think the dream or success to me is when, you know, I can see somebody I don't know looking at Festival Pass and, you know, really enjoying the fact that, you know, here, let's, as an example here in, in Austin, maybe they're looking at ACL, which is one of the biggest festivals here. And they're like, cool, uh, I'm going to ACL because I got it through Festival Pass. And there's 50 other venues in town this weekend. And there's a band playing at each of these 50 venues. And I can look at the app and plan my entire weekend just by using Festival Pass, knowing I'm going to go to, you know, this show at X, X venue. I'm going to, you know, whatever the, the concept is. I just want people to be able to experience that discovery and to be able to do so at scale. Love it. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that I know when it comes to live events, if it's not a big market event like an ACL, but even with ACL, there's obviously, you know, nuances of how do you actually create a great experience because there are so many performers that are playing at different venues at different times. Sure. But it's also just like for me as a consumer, it's discovery, right? I mean, there's just, you know, how do I know which event or live event to go to? And I, you know, you go do a quick Google search and it always returns results that are old or they're only on, you know, one type of event. And I'll see all the events for networking events around entrepreneurship, but I actually wanted to go see something else, but that's just what meetup or whatever Google, you know, shot back at me. Yep. So I really like the fact that you're, you're really focused on this connecting people with events that are meaningful to themselves, to them. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. And like all, all of the, there hasn't been that many social experiences in the live event business. So, you know, there's a couple of ticketing companies that have tried a social approach, but, you know, the way I look at it is I want to see when I log in a festival pass and that these are features that are a few months out, but, you know, I've interconnected with 500 people on festival pass that are all also members because I've connected my Facebook or Instagram or whatever chosen social network. And now I flip up an event and let's say this event is at trying to think of an example, City Winery in New York. And it's, you know, for the old people out there, it's Joan Jett playing or whatever, or for, for young people, it'd be some, somebody else. But now I can immediately see these little faces on this event page and be like, oh, okay, 10 of my friends that I know are totally going to this. I'm going to go too. And now it creates this ability for us to interact pre-show, after show, during show. We're going to let people be posting, you know, photos from shows and then kind of creating this experience that people want to be on Festival Pass pre, during, and post 
the entire live show experience. Yeah. No, I like that, Ed, because I think you're, it sounds like you're tapping into something that the social media platforms used to be good at when they were smaller, mm-hmm. right? Where you could discover that a friend or someone was going to be in the same place or same event venue. And now there's just, you know, you're inundated with so much stuff that you, you know, you might find out a week later that someone was at the same event as you. And you're like, man, we should have connected. So I love that you're creating that ability again. Yeah, no, I agree. It's really just about connection and community and having a frictionless approach to, to experiencing live events. Awesome. Well, Ed, I want to transition now and talk a little bit about uh, personal finance as someone that's been on all sides of the equation, it sounds like, uh, in the entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial world. I'd love to get your take on personal finance. And specifically, I'd like to start with your relationship with money. How would you describe that? Yeah, I don't know how to answer that question so much. I mean, I have three daughters uh, and an ex-wife, so uh, there's been a process along the way. But I do realize that in and of itself, as an entrepreneur, for me, I, I constantly reinvest in, in what I'm doing and in, in myself and my time, as well as capital, in order to kind of explore what's important for me in, in life. So uh, while I've had many successes in the past, the, the actual dollar amount of money isn't that important to me. What's always been important is to, you know, wealth to me is being able to kind of experience what you want to experience when you want to experience it without any, you know, weight of financial burden. I love that. Yeah. It's that, yeah, that kind of like capturing your time, right. Being able to in the live event space, right. Go and have experiences yeah. with the people that you care about and when you can and not worry about, am I going to be able to keep the lights on or, you know, feed the family. Exactly. And what would you say is the best investment that you've made? Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess it can go, there, there's some good ones and bad ones. So at the end of the day, uh, there's public market investments that, that are always good, which are interesting. And then there's just entrepreneurial investments. So in, investing in myself and time, here, here's one example I would say, and it's not even a classic financial investment, but I'm part of a, an entrepreneur group called EO. I don't know if you've heard of EO, it's Entrepreneurs Organization. There's a, there's YPO and EO, which are two very similar organizations. One is for entrepreneurs, one's for presidents. But anyway, it's a, it's a global organization of 14,000 entrepreneurs. And I've been part of it now for about 14 years. And, you know, costs X amount of dollars every year for dues. And there's an investment into participating in a bunch of the events. I was lucky enough through the program to go to MIT for three years for an entrepreneur master's degree with 70 other entrepreneurs globally. But, but going through and investing in that process of being part and spending the thousands upon thousands of dollars necessary to do it was, you know, the return that I've received from that organization has been immense. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that there's that opportunity to connect with other people. And as you said, the organizations that are really focused on development, and it's not just, I got X amount of money for investing in this stock or this startup. It's the kind of those intangibles going back to the things that we can't value, right. That are harder to value. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it just goes back to the place where some people might get an initial financial return from, as you said, a stock or something else, but haven't built their capacity to earn any more so um, than anything else. And, you know, at some point in time, the market might go down or an investment might not pay off as well as it can be. But when you continue to invest in yourself, you you're always have the capacity to earn. Perfect. So Ed, not all the decisions we make are, are always good. So I'm curious to get the flip side of the coin. What would you say is the dumbest 
money mistake that you've made? Yeah, I think I'd have to say when we had city stuff back in the day, we ended up selling at a time where it was a fear-based sale because we had, we launched in 1999. It was uh, 2001 and, you know, the internet 1.0, the, the, the bubble turned into a bust and we didn't know if we we're going to need more capital. We didn't know how we'd continue to run the company, even though we were, you know, successful. We had all these great, you know, you being from New York, you would recognize it. Do you know Junior's Cheesecake from Brooklyn? Yeah, absolutely. So we had Junior's Cheesecake. We sold millions of dollars of cheesecake through City Stuff because that was before Junior's had their own website, right? So they they were doing mail order and, you know, around the holidays, we would just crank out, you know, cheesecake orders amongst other things like H&H bagels and all the other great things in New York. But, and this was all, if you put the timing in perspective, this is all before Google and Facebook even existed. So and the way you get uh, information out back then was all about PR. It was all about, let me, let me, uh, hold a big sign in front of uh, the Today Show or Good Morning America with citystuff.com, which we did many times, because you couldn't just go to a search engine and find it. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, buy media through Facebook to, to get to people. So it was a different experience. But at the time, we ended up selling to a company in Connecticut for what I thought was a great deal. It was stock in this other company. You know, I, I was worth, you know, millions upon millions of dollars on paper at 25 years old. But then subsequent events happened. 9-11 came in New York. The economy dried up, especially in Manhattan. Things came to a big halt. All that millions upon millions of dollars, you know, basically went to zero. So it was a, an experience that I wish we, I wish we didn't sell. And because uh, if we just held on, even if we had to kind of reduce expenses and kind of reformulate the team for a period of a year, on the other side of it, everything started growing again. Google actually came to be <laughs> all these other things that would have easily excelled us to a different level. So the reason why I bring that up as it was a bad decision, but also a bad investment uh, of money or a depletion of value. But even today with Festival Pass, we launched Festival Pass prior to the pandemic. You know, nine out of 10 other entrepreneurs, maybe not entrepreneurs, but had we taken institutional investment capital prior to, we would have been told to shut down. We would have been told you can't start a, a, a new company based upon live events when we don't know if live events will ever come back. And that was a learning experience that came from City Stuff, which I said, well, no, what we're going to do is we're going to take the money we have today. We're going to spend it wisely. We're going to keep building infrastructure and we're going to be ready when, when things come out the other side. And that's what we did. And right now it's awesome because it's uh, the roaring twenties are coming back. We're just, uh, we're in a place where the economy is good or growing live events is, you know, one of the biggest businesses, you know, for the next 18 months, it's going to be crazy. And we're ready because we have the tech built and we have the partnerships in place. So we're excited to go on this ride. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. I love how you were able to take that uh, that lesson and from city stuff and be able to apply that to uh, to festival pass and hang in there and not not take that fear based approach but really think about where we're going to be in the next year eighteen months and prepare for that eventual future and reality. Yep. So Ed, one thing that I that I missed that I wanted to to dig in on is that you kept using the term this credit based currency and you're also 
work with a, a blockchain incubator. Is there is there some future plans where you're going to turn where you're going to take what's going on in the crypto and blockchain space and utilize that with Festival Pass? Just a shot in the dark here, but I'm just curious based on your you know background and experience. Sure. So it's a good question, and there will be some integration with the concept of blockchain in the future. Not probably not in the way you're thinking though. So the credit-based currency that we're using internally, it's important to understand the way cryptocurrency or any kind of currency works yeah. on the blockchain is that there's either decentralized or centralized um, uh, gov governance, if you will. It's important for Festival Pass to have centralized governance because we're actually maintaining the value of the currency. So for us to be able to have gross margin, positive metrics on every transaction, we need to be able to manage that supply and demand and the dynamic pricing that enables our consumers to get the best deal. It enables the event to sell the product at the right value and for us to get a margin. So the answer is, is our credits likely will not turn into cryptocurrency in any capacity. But where I do see a lot of value is the ability to create a couple of things. One is rewards programs within a crypto environment. So will there ever be a festival pass coin? Maybe, but it won't be the core coin that drives the ticket pricing. What it may be is a rewards uh, mechanism that can be are converted into festival pass credits. So there is value. So that's one aspect. And the other one where it's more likely is in the crowdfunding world. So there are, as you can imagine, many marketplaces that in the future of the next, call it one to three years, will provide more and more exchanges available for privately held companies, some that may be blockchain driven, some that may be crypto driven. So another strategy to this overall crowdfunding concept really is, is as we have tens of thousands of investors in the company, we will be having secondary markets for our shares. And that can happen on many different exchanges, some of which will be blockchain driven. Gotcha. Thanks for explaining that and delineating between blockchain and just a centralized and decentralized cryptocurrency. Cause I think that's a really important, uh, important thing to note. And I noticed that you're on start engine now, but had used other equity crowdfunding platforms. Is that because start engine now has the ability to trade shares, secondary shares, and you're going to have this kind of always on model. It's a great question. And you are right. That was a big factor when we chose to go with start engine. However, what I'm realizing is over time, start engine is great. I have no issues with start engine, but I'm realizing all of them will have that secondary market. Anyway, it was just start engine was better at marketing it initially. And, and I think over time, no matter, we'll see how long the process will go. There are a lot of other opportunities to manage crowdfunding without a traditional marketplace, or how do I say, a traditional company like a start engine or others that I think once we're past, you know, call it a year or two from now, once we're in a place where we already have tens of thousands of investors, we may be able to manage that whole system ourselves through a white label process so that we're not always, and the, the core reason, and I don't know why I'm being so transparent right now, but the core reason is uh, it's, I'm a consumer marketing conversion guy. And when you're when you market and tell people to come in and learn about your process and then you ask them to invest and they have to then sign up for another platform in order to get to the place of making that investment it's like the old amazon you know reduce the clicks so i just want to create the least friction and letting a main street investor participate in the opportunity 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I appreciate you being very transparent. I've looked, I've personally spoken with a lot of these different platforms. So just curious as to your decision-making and as to why you, you chose to go that route. And then the last thing I've got just around festival passes, is there an ability to transfer credits or is that something that might be on the roadmap? Because I could see that where it's like, I want to gift credits to you know, a friend or maybe I got sick and I can't go to any live events for a while. So you know, I still want to continue to be a, a consumer and get value and be a part of the community, but can I you know, trade or sell or gift credits? So the answer is you're right, it's on the roadmap. It doesn't exist today. And there are a couple of nuances, especially with the understanding of data. And this is something I did learn at MoviePass, which was very important, was that having a deterministic data set is important. So we, we want to know and be able to provide even anonymously who goes to what event. So we all always want to try and make sure that somebody that's using one of our tickets is actually a, a user. Even if they're a free member of Festival Pass, we at least want to know who they are, what their email address is, et cetera. So what we're going to be doing is allowing people to that are on the platform connect. So almost like a social network where you and I are now both Festival Pass members and we've friended each other, if you will. So once that has happened and we're kind of interconnected within Festival Pass together, we then will allow you to transfer credits to me because we've chosen to be connected in our environment. And that will, I think, facilitate some of the kind of group planning. And we're also looking at things where it's not necessarily the transfer of credits, but you might say, hey, I just got a ticket to Black Pumas and I want these 10 of my friends that are all on Festival Pass to go with me, click a button and they all get an invite to say, hey, let's all go to Black Pumas on Friday night. Cool, okay. That makes sense, Ed. And yeah, I appreciate you on the roadmap. I assumed that it, it was probably a future thing based on based on what you shared or the challenges and kind of focus at the time of the business. But that's awesome. I'm really excited to, and I appreciate you sitting down and this has been a lot of fun. Cool. No, thank you for having me. This has been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll leave you with the last word. If there's anything that you want to leave the audience with, and then please let us know how folks can connect with you outside of this podcast. Sure. So I just think for a connection, I mean, festivalpass.com is the easiest way to go. Sign up, be a free member. Even if you don't see an event you like today, you will. There, there were new events coming every day. And then on social, Instagram, TikTok, you name it, Facebook, all, all the above, depending upon what your preference is. And then if you go to invest.festivalpass.com, if anybody wants to participate, we're only going to have that campaign open for another month or so before we raise the valuation and go to the next. That's just a great way to participate early on. We're excited about building this and the next 18 months is going to be a, a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ed. And again, appreciate you sitting down today. Cool. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. On your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying, I'll never leave this place. Some words got you searching for the bright side over